Welcome to Can't Make This Up, a history podcast where we interview leading historians and authors on unique and unusual history. I hope that all of you had a great holiday season and that the new year is off to an excellent start for you. Before we dive into today's topic and kick off season three of the podcast, I wanted to begin with some New Year's announcements. I am very excited to say that I have joined a podcast network. The Can't Make This Up History podcast is now a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Straight Up Strange is a collaborative podcast network containing several shows that deal with history and myths and legends and true crime and folklore. So I encourage you, if you're curious, to head on over to straightupstrange.com and check out the show lineup. There is something there for everyone. What this means for you as a listener is that occasionally I might have a guest co-host from Straight Up Strange. Uh, I might air a promo periodically for one of their shows. And there will be some opportunities for some other collaborative projects down the road. So it's a very uh, exciting prospect for me as a host. It's nice to not be doing this alone. So a huge thank you to Andrew McKay and everyone with Straight Up Strange who invited me to join the network. I am very excited to see what this partnership leads to in the coming year and beyond. So before we get into today's topic, we'll do a short intro for Straight Up Strange, and then I will introduce today's topic and guest on the other side. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Now let's get into what we're going to be talking about today. One downfall of living in the internet age with access to all the world's knowledge is that we also live with access to all the world's advice. Whether an opinion is based on science, tradition, or personal experience, there are countless blogs and experts ready to tell us how to live. This chaos is only compounded once you have children. Those of us who are dads can certainly relate to this, but I think we can agree that moms bear the brunt of it, even before their baby is even born. Natural birth or epidural, breastfeeding or formula, cry it out or attachment parenting, co-sleeping or crib. On today's show, my guest and I talk about the history behind mothering expertise and how this flood of advice has always been the case to some degree or another. Bethany Johnson is a doctoral student focusing on the history of science, technology, and the environment and is part of the research faculty at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. She studies how ideas in science, medical technology, and public health have been communicated historically. Bethany is co-author of the book, You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering, Media, and Medical Expertise, along with Dr. Margaret Quinlan, who studies communication within the healthcare system. In You're Doing It Wrong, Bethany and Margaret describe the changing care mothers and their children have received since the 1800s, as well as the medical and parental advice women throughout history have been given from the medical profession and from the media. After the show, check out this episode's show notes at www.cmtuhistory.com for a special 30% off discount code when you buy a copy of You're Doing It Wrong. And then if you like today's episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave the show a review. 
Right now I'm sitting at 17 reviews on Apple Podcasts. I would love to see that get up to 20. Those reviews are an excellent source of word of mouth marketing that helps spread awareness about the show and let people know what kind of history we do here on the podcast. Now on to the show. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Hi, Bethany. Welcome on the program. Thanks for having me. So uh, you have uh, written a book, you, you've co-written a book with uh, mm-hmm. Margaret Quinlan, um, essentially a, an interesting take on, on parenting and, and the history thereof called You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering, Media, and Medical Expertise. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your uh, about yourself and your background and what led the two of you to want to write a book like this. Well, um, I am a historian, and I focus specifically on the history of medicine. And within the history of medicine, I look at the history of um, women's reproductive health and also epidemics. So the questions I ask about epidemics have a lot to do with um, the chronicity or chronic things that come out of surviving an epidemic and um, how that conversation is lost in public health and in women's reproductive history. This book is an extension of research that Dr. Quinlan and I did previously about the history of infertility treatment and birth methods like twilight sleep, which is a drug cocktail um, similar to what is used when people have a colonoscopy today where you're not fully under, but you don't remember what happened. Um, that became very popular uh, just before and during World War One, particularly in New York City and Chicago in the U.S. And uh, the two of us worked together writing about that um, and did some really interesting interdisciplinary work because Dr. Quinlan works in health communication and communication studies. She does rhetorical analysis. And we're both interested in how people that don't normally have power within institutional or structural settings, uh, find their way to getting what they need. And so that was a question that we were sort of dealing with when the option of writing this book came up. We were really lucky to partner with Rutgers University Press, who let us ask some interesting questions. And we really thought about the ways that expertise is practiced Um, when it comes to parenting and medicine. So there's, you know, when you have a a baby, an infant, a newborn, even if you've had one before or been around one or had a friend who had one, it can be a pretty touch and go time. It's hard to tell when things are serious or normal. And these are times when people are much more likely to seek out medical expertise. And we were interested in the ways this happened in newspapers in the early 20th century and the ways that it happens on social media today. So I spend a lot of the time doing the archival work and then Dr. Quinlan and I get together and she helps me move through doing the analysis of the of the moment uh, pieces that we're putting together. So it's been a really fun time working on this with Dr. Quinlan 
and um, it's let me ask questions that I wouldn't normally ask about the present. Yeah, I, th- I think this is a fun, fun topic. It's a it's an interesting look at uh, the history of something that a lot of people uh, have personal experience with. Um, you know, as as a dad of, of three kids, I've I've experienced some of this. Uh, seemingly, you know, from the moment your child is born, you're getting advice from either doctors or friends or parents. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you should do skin to skin, or you should leave your baby in the little plastic box thing to be carried away, or. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they go to sleep and, you know, what goes in the crib, what's around them. Uh, there's all these different things that everyone seems to have an opinion on. So it was very interesting to read your book. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you're, um, and not all families begin with a biological birth, but for those that are carrying a child, uh, people are very fast and loose with their advice if they perceive you to be carrying a child or if they perceive you to be a person that could carry a child. Um, I've been given a lot of interesting, um, totally inaccurate medical advice in the grocery (laughs) store um, from complete strangers. So I think it's this very interesting and this very interesting space in your life where people are will interact with you in a way that they just wouldn't act interact with anyone else at another time in their life. And I think that that has been virtually the same throughout history, even when, um, you know, we looked at the papers, uh, the Clemson family uh, of Clemson University. And even at a time when people would go into seclusion when they were pregnant, people were still getting unsolicited advice and family letters. And we can confirm that <laughs> by a lot of the archives that we looked in. So even when it wasn't meant to be known that you were pregnant, people still had a lot to say about how you did that before your baby even got here. <laughs> Um, well, let's let's start by defining some terms. Um, your mm-hmm. your book is um, a lot about expertise. So, what uh, is the definition of an quote unquote expert, and how has that changed over time? So, I think that America is a really interesting example of how expertise can be a very complicated term. So, most of us would think of an expert. In the traditional sense, you know, if you want to think about an expert in medicine, you might think about a doctor, a nurse practitioner, a surgeon. Um, If you want to think about an expert in law, you might think about a lawyer or potentially a politician when it comes to policy. So we think about these sort of very traditional roles with very specific training in particular institutions. Um, But that's always been up for debate in American history. So if you start today, um, I'm sure anyone that has an account on a social media platform will experience uh, (laughs) anyone who's very confident comes across as an expert, right? You often get very, very confident information and advisement from people whose background you may not be familiar with, whose training you may not be familiar with, but you can actually see people taking on this person's opinion and information and and making health choices based on that. And we've published some studies on how that works. But historically, um, what's interesting is that, you know, particularly in medicine, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, when people are on the frontier, the experts were anybody that had any kind of 
knowledge because there weren't institutions um, all over the country, particularly on the in the frontier areas that were training anyone in a traditional way, the way that they would have been trained in Europe. And at the time, you know, most of that training was with humoral theory and bleeding and sweating people and making them vomit. So the doctor could make something happen, but they couldn't necessarily make you well. So there has been a lot of discussion over the last 250 years about who actually has the right to claim expertise. And that has always been contested. We would talk about expertise more as what is ex- is expected in the exchange. So we see a lot of different people with a lot of different trainings and backgrounds operating as experts. The difference between expertise and advice to us is that you often pay or remunerate in some way the expert that you are seeking information from. And that expert uh, gives the information in a way that they expect it to be followed. Whereas someone in your family may give you advice and really hope that you follow it, but the expectation in that exchange is different than it is with an expert for whom you are paying for or exchanging something for their services. So that that's an element that we're really interested in the book. When you are paying someone for their expertise, how does that change what is exchanged and how it is followed? Um, and how does social media uh, mess with that? <laughs> And presumably that person um, has some kind of credential that justifies mm-hmm. payment. Absolutely. So, and, and that could be, you know, again, in America, the sort of grassroots medical structures have always been very popular. The first real populist medical movement, you know, 1830s to about the 1850s, where you had homeopathy and Thompsonism and all of these eclectic doctors who did go to school and did get training, but it was non-traditional and it did operate, you know, outside of the more traditional tracks that were popular in Europe at the time. Those were limited um, after the Flaxner report in 1910 when um, the way medical schools operated was really um, regulated. But today, you know, you could see a doula, a midwife, um, a nurse midwife, an obstetrician, uh, a nurse practitioner. Um, so there are a lot of different roles and a lot of different perspectives available. Um, and those people all have some kind of training, uh, certification and a different expertise perspective, which actually is part of what makes it so confusing. (laughs) Your book is organized, um, somewhat topically on the, the stages of pre-pregnancy and pregnancy and, and, and birth and so forth. Um, and so we'll kind of follow that, um, that, mm-hmm. that arrangement in our questioning. Um, so, so going back even before pregnancy, um, how historically did gender roles shape how the medical profession dealt with the issue of infertility? That's a great question. And, um, unfortunately, very much the way that you would expect. So, uh, particularly as early as the 1850s, when there were doctors, uh, you know, pre very far back in the 18th century, midwives would try herbal, um, concoctions and tinctures. Uh, there was very literal, little structurally that a midwife could do, you know, you, you couldn't perform a surgery, um, and starting in the 1850s, there were more men in obstetrics. They were interested in treating women. But from the beginning of that relationship, 
infertility has largely been framed as a mental deficiency. Um, and what we study in our chapter is the idea that if you just relax, you'll get pregnant. Uh, anybody that has been in infertility treatment, I guarantee you has heard this. So unfortunately, we have not kicked that to the curb any time since the 1850s. But what we did do was we traced, um, it, you also hear a lot now that infertility rates are on the rise. Um, infertility rates have been listed between 7 and 15% since they've been recorded in the 1870s. Um, most people will put it between eight to 10% now, but if you look at that range, it has always been in that range since people have been reporting on it and keeping records. So despite the fact that you hear that infertility is increasing, it is still well within the bounds of what we have seen over the last 150 years. And at every point in there, you had someone telling a woman, first of all, she was the source of infertility. Men were not thought to be able to be infertile until by many into the 20th century. And, you know, the women needed to relax or maybe she should consider stop uh, being interested in education. Maybe she should rest her brain and she should read, uh, she should stop reading, particularly things like chemistry and Greek, which seemed to really sap one's life force, which is what doctors thought at the time. You know, anything that was considered inappropriate or male for women to be doing that was what was blamed uh, as the source of her infertility. And, you know, this really happens in, up until the 1950s. You know, you have doctors. Now you have um, psychologists and psychotherapists saying that women are trying to evade their female duties and roles. And it is that evasion that is shutting down their reproductive system. And if they would quit their job and stay home or my favorite, and I mean that sarcastically, if they would just adopt, you know, that would free up their subconscious energy to allow them to be pregnant, which I think is horribly unfair to an adopted child who should be adopted because they are wanted and beloved. And that is all not as an infertility cure. Um, but that's where that myth came from the 1950s. And, you know, we still have this up in the, to the, the present. We cited an article from 2008 in which a female doctor suggested that people should try to go down to working part time because the stress, um, of work was potentially making people infertile. We know people that have very stressful jobs that have no issue getting pregnant. So we're confused about why this continues to happen, but it seems to be when you don't have an explanation and more than 30% of cases of infertility are unexplained, the easiest thing to do is to fall back on gender stereotypes. And we're still doing that today. We're, you know, well into 170 years into that project and we're still doing it. Um, interestingly, we've never decided that it doesn't work, even though it never did before, but hopefully, um, as the conversation continues to unfurl, we will be able to see that for what it is, which is not good science. So, um, one thing that you, you mentioned in the opening was, um, something called twilight sleep, which mm -hmm. was really interesting. I, I'd never heard of this before. Um, what what was it first of all, and and how is it a, a good example of um, what you call lay expertise, kind of um, hijacking technical expertise? So this is such a fascinating story. So Twilight Sleep is in its iteration. It, it showed up in medical journals in the U.S. as early as 1908, and people sort of said, you know, this is wild. It doesn't work. 
Um, and then around 1914, some really wealthy white women in New York City socialites decided to travel to the German front <laughs> to um, get a doctor who would give them this drug cocktail. The drug most often used was scopolamine. And um, that's actually the drug if people go on a cruise and they put a patch behind their ear. It's an anti-nausea drug. But if you give someone 10 times that dose, it will just erase their memory. So um, usually the injection was given in the thigh of scopolamine and either morphine or narcofen. In the U.S., um, narcofen was used more often, particularly in New York City. And that's where the sort of mythical pain relief piece comes into play because the lay experts were actually the people that went to Germany and experienced this birth method, loved it, came home, wrote about it in the New York Times, wrote about it in, you know, Good Housekeeping and Ladies World and did a lot of research. There was one mother who um, ended up in Germany and she just gathered German medical records on this particular procedure and translated, you know, thousands of pages of material to, um, to write her book about twilight sleep. And so, um, you have these people getting this injection and a lot of pain relief at the beginning because they are having an opioid and then that wears off and then they're given memory tests every 15 minutes or so. And if they can remember an object that the doctor showed them at the last memory test, that meant that the scopolamine was wearing off and they would generally get a booster shot. And they were still able to be, you know, if the doctor said, get in this position or roll over here or put your hands here or sit here, um, the patient was able to do that. There was usually a nurse um, or a couple of nurses on hand and, um, this is actually where stirrups started. It was easier for the doctor to assist in the birth um, with someone who was only partially conscious if their legs were in stirrups. So that's uh, where those were popularized. And um, that sort of launched uh, a wide range of drugs. There was a doctor in New York City who wrote in um, a local medical journal and he said, you know, okay, twilight sleep, that's fine. Okay, you know, chloroform's not great. You know, ether's not great. Um, but I have something that works really well. And every woman that gives birth with me always comes back to have the rest of her babies. You do a big shot at the beginning. They love it. It's called heroin. You should really try it on your patients who are giving birth. Um, and so this is really at a time where what doctors didn't understand and they asked each other a lot in these journal articles was, you know, are these drugs, can they pass the placental barrier and impact the child? And so one of the reasons that twilight sleep wasn't popular in the U.S. is because there was a lot of, uh, well, it, it was among women, but it wasn't popular initially among doctors because there was disagreement about whether or not the babies were born asphyxiated or another word they used oligopneic, which really just means, you know, also this um, picture of an old school doctor slapping a baby and making it cry. Mm -hmm. um, this was really the technique people were using at the time to make sure that the, the baby's breathing capacity was intact. And there was some concern about given the dosage of twilight sleep, um, how that impacted the baby. And, and you couldn't really test it. <laughs> you couldn't test it on the woman until she was in labor. 
Um, so they really had to have really well-trained physicians and a really ample medical staff. Um, so it was a really expensive procedure. But the way that lay expertise co-opted this, um, the perfect example is Dr. John Pollock, who worked at the Long Island Hospital and was really well-known in his field and led the department. And he is all over the Brooklyn Eagle early in 1914 saying, you know, he's never going to use this procedure. He doesn't believe in it. Talking about its impact on babies. Well, he has a number of wealthy women in his community say, you know, you need to do this procedure or I will take myself and my money elsewhere. And so he actually goes on uh, a ship and takes a summer tour um, of Paris and um, makes a stop in London and uh, goes to Germany. And on his way back, he talks to a London reporter and says, you know, now that I've seen in person, I'm really interested. And a month later, he's in the Brooklyn Eagle saying this is the best thing that has ever happened to women. And he really launches the effort in the New York City area um, to get to get this available to people. And he does many births with this technique in the, in the time period we studied. So he really was responding to pressure from an educated and wealthy birthing populace who put together the Twilight Sleep Association, went on tour, made a film that they showed in communities along the East Coast. They sent out brochures and members of the Twilight Sleep Association published in lay magazines. You know, this is the early 20th century. Many, many people were reading newspapers and magazines. This was where it was at. This was the you know, Instagram and Twitter of the early 20th century. And Twilight Sleep Association members were out there stumping for Twilight Sleep and it impacted medical practice. You know, particularly in a place like New York City, there was a lot of interest in what um, the wealthy and well-connected were doing at the time, even as people had a lot of mixed feelings about, you know, at the end of the Gilded Age, how these people were actually impacting society, there was still a lot of fascination with how they lived. So when people were writing about something and saying, you know, I think this birth method should be available to everyone, there was a lot of interest in that. And it, it really created a kind of public fervor. So, you know, you had three or four years where you see just about every hospital in the city starting a twilight sleep ward and you even had a private house on Riverside Drive that was set up just for twilight sleep and it was run um, by a doctor and it kept coming up in the news because the neighbors kept suing saying that it was really noisy um, because once these women didn't realize they were conscious they were a lot less uh, tight-lipped shall we say they, they became very noisy <laughs> and demonstrative during their births and uh, the neighbors in the mansions on Riverside Drive didn't didn't appreciate that, and so took um, took this doctor to court. And you can follow that whole. Thing. He won, by the way. He eventually closed um, closed his practice, but it, it operated there for a couple of years. And and was it very effective? Did they walk away not remembering much of the experience? It depended on the client, so or the patient. I think that's a great question. So most people loved it. And actually, most people called it painless, not because it wasn't, it, not because it was actually painless, but because they didn't remember being in pain. But there was something that could occur. And this can happen in colonoscopies and other similar procedures today. It's called islands of memory, where you're kind of 
awake for a second until they give you another dose and you kind of remember a few moments of something, maybe some sounds. Um, and one of the ways they tried to get around this with twilight sleep and one of the reasons why they needed so much, so much extra staff is that they would, um, you know, they would put oil soaked cotton in people's ears so that they wouldn't be disturbed by noises in the rest of the ward. They put particular glasses on them. They closed and shuttered the windows because they didn't want any sensory information to distract or potentially create one of these islands of memory for the patient. And so they also did really extensive work monitoring that those kinds of inputs for patients. Um, but there were people that didn't react well to the drug at all. There was a woman in New York who climbed out of her bed, managed to open a window while in labor and climbed out onto a tree branch. And it took, you know, four staff to get her in and they had to tie her to stirrups. <laughs> and um, she doesn't remember any of it, you know, um, as far as she was concerned, she had a great birth and that was very rare. So I want to be clear. Um, you know, these are the types of stories that often made the news, but if you look at the number of births that these hospitals actually reported, that was a, that was a really, really rare side effect, um, that happened. And the interesting thing about the drug is that if it didn't appear to be working, you just gave the patient some more. So the, the reason that, um, particularly feminists, so a lot of these women that were very outspoken about it, interestingly, were suffragettes. Uh, they wanted women to be able to operate in the workplace and be professors and things like that. Um, their concern was that it was the mental strain of birth that was actually killing people. Freud got to New York city and, you know, 1909, I think it was. So there were some Freudian ideas about um, the impact of your emotions on your mental state and how that could actually ruin your health. So these kind of ideas are infusing this twilight sleep conversation in a really interesting way. But you have these women really fighting for this because their thinking was, look, I'm a modern woman. I don't need to be screaming on a bed for 20 hours. I want this to be a night of my life, as one mother said, that just passes and I don't remember it. And so their selling point was that when you woke up, you didn't remember how exhausted you were. And they, they would always say in these articles, within the same day of giving birth, you could sit up in your bed and eat. And that was a big deal to women at the time, particularly women who were considered, quote unquote, delicate because of how civilized, quote unquote, they were always white people, of course. Um, there was this thinking that the more civilized you were, the harder it would be for you to recover from birth. And you could have to lay in your bed for weeks at a time. So telling these wealthy women, you know, you can have someone take you on a, a car ride in those fancy new, new vehicles that we have within two days of your birth. That was a huge selling point. People understood what that meant. It, it meant that you were having a totally different kind of birth. And people weren't willing to settle for anything else once they read that that was possible. And it put a lot of pressure on doctors. In this same uh, time period, um, there are also advances in uh, neonatal mm -hmm. care. And um, the invention of the incubator led to something that they called artificial mothering. Um, but it also mm -hmm. took away uh, power from mothers. Um, can you tell us mm -hmm. a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so... Incubators came to the U.S. A few hospitals have them, particularly uh, Chicago probably had one of the earliest, most robust 
neonatal centers. There are a few places, Mount Sinai um, in New York comes to mind. But most often in the 19-teens, 1920s, and even early 1930s, these doctors were not equipped, these hospitals were not equipped to keep these babies from dying. And that was because of um, communicable diseases that were available in the hospital. It was very hard to make a space that was safe from epidemics. And, you know, babies that are premature have very delicate immune systems. So there was a man named Martin Cooney, and he immigrated from Germany, we think. Uh, he said a couple of different things on a couple of different registers, as many people did at the time. So there are still a lot of questions about where he's actually from. Um, he always called himself a doctor after uh, from the 1880s on, although he didn't call himself a doctor when he was exhibiting these um, incubators at the World's Fair in Berlin. Um, and there's actually no evidence that he went to medical school that we or anyone that we know have, has been able to find. But this gentleman ended up going to World's Fairs. Uh, he was in Omaha, Nebraska at a fair there. He was at the Buffalo Exposition. And he brought incubators. And local hospitals would tell families when they had a premature baby, look, take your baby to this man. This is the only way that your baby won't die. Your baby will die here. And so <clears throat> we interviewed Beth Allen who was one of the babies that ended up on Coney Island in New York. And she told us that her father wrapped her up in a tiny blanket, surrounded her with newspapers to keep her as warm as possible, got in a taxi and drove her to Coney Island and handed her over to Dr. Martin Cooney or to, to Cooney. And um, she was there for more than six weeks and she lived and we were talking to her in her late eighties. So she was in excellent health as an elderly adult. And um, just hearing her story really makes clear the way that this, this notion of artificial mothering definitely took, took power away from new mothers in that they were not actually doing the caring for these babies. They were not allowed to feed or wash them. If they wanted to see their babies while they were in this display that people paid for, and people paid for the seeing these babies because it funded their care. Um, Cooney also lived well. Um, but I think, you know, we have a lot of space in the States for understanding that if this is your living, you're allowed to make it. Um, and these babies would have died at a hospital. So most of the people that were, you know, babies of Cooney or, um, had family members that were speak very highly of Cooney's model and the way that it worked. But mothers would look at their babies from behind a glass partition and they were allowed to meet them, as it were, for the first time at what Cooney called graduation or the day that they went home. And they weren't given any training in how to care for a premature baby. They hadn't had any time to bond. And Cooney was oh, was pretty nasty about this in the newspapers. You know, he would say things like, well, you can't tell women anything these days. And, you know, some of them are just lazy and don't want to take the babies home. You know, we've interviewed a lot of parents that had babies in neonatal units today where they are very involved in, you know, kangaroo care and skin to skin. And they learn to do these cares is what they're called. The, the neonatal nurses train these parents to do this work for their baby and to begin that bonding process. I can't imagine what it would be like to have to, you're in a hospital bed 
someone takes your baby to someone at a sideshow and then you see them two months later. The idea that you wouldn't be scared or resistant to this transition um, sort of boggles my mind. It, it really boggles me that he didn't get it. These people didn't have access to their babies. They didn't mother them. They weren't their mothers yet. And, you know, they were biologically, but certainly not relationally and certainly not in any of the ways that people experience um, caretaking in the early weeks and months of a child's life. So there was a lot, there were a lot of questions in, you know, scientific American about, you know, if these incubators work so well with babies, should we just put all babies in these incubators and just sort of cut the mother out of the deal? Um, I, I think people didn't stick with that, but what's interesting about the story of Cooney, you know, NPR and a lot of programs, the BBC does, um, you know, features on Cooney all the time and Coney Island every year on their anniversary and on their bigger, you know, centennial and, and so on. They do a lot of talk about Cooney's work. Um, they never talk about the parents. And Cooney actually didn't do most of the caring for these babies. He talked to the audiences and the doctors and uh, medical practitioners that came to study what they were doing. It was the nurses there who did the feeding and the washing and the changing um, and really taking care of these children. Um, but he, he would call them his, you know, he was their foster father and they were his kids. Um, and he, he talked about that as a point of pride and the mothers are just kind of erased from the story, except for when he talks about them as if they're villains basically who don't want to take on the responsibility. But we also, you know, we didn't have any language about postpartum depression or any of those things that could have very much been impacting these mothers, uh, who, whose kids were gone from them for months at a time. Yeah, you, you get the sense that there's supposed to be this faith in him as the professional and faith in the technology, um, and the mothers should take a back seat to that until he's ready to surrender the babies back to them. A hundred percent. And, you know, um, I'm sure you've come across this before, but Americans love a maverick, right? He, he was a doctor, quote-unquote, operating outside of the traditional medical system that didn't want to give these babies a chance. And he believed in them. And he saved, you know, we've seen numbers between five and 8,000. And, and he did. You know, his facility, these incubators saved lives. That is a factual claim. Um, but, you know, doctors in hospitals were starting to catch up with Cooney by the time he closed down in the early 1940s. And what's interesting is that Cooney had a lot to say about how it was mother's fault that their babies were born prematurely. If they wouldn't drink orange soda and eat delicatessen lunches and drive around in fast cars and ride the train, you know, maybe their babies wouldn't be born prematurely. But what, what so few people even today uh, remind us is that Cooney's only child was born prematurely. Um, and he had to go to, during the winter season, his facility on Coney Island and get an incubator out of storage to save his own child's life. He never had much to say about what his own wife did wrong, though, interestingly. Clearly must have driven a car too fast or yeah. drank too much orange crush. Yeah. I know. <laughs> um, so you mentioned a minute ago um, the idea of postpartum um, depression, and and there are, you did some research into how mothers were cared for after giving birth. Um, and you compared the 1800s to today, and you found some interesting comparisons. What did you guys find? So um, the uh, the materials we looked at most closely 
were the Boston Lying In Outpatient Obstetric Handbooks. We also looked at the New England Women's and Children's Hospital, but most of their patients were inpatient. The thing that I was really interested in about the outpatient files, um, and we looked from 1896 to 1905, and most closely between 1900 and 1905. Um, <laughs> I tried, you know, someone in, in a different setting asked me, you know, how would you improve the postpartum care that mothers have today? And I would say I can't answer that question because mothers don't have postpartum care today. Um, you have the baby, you're in the hospital for 24 to 48 hours, and then no one sees you for six weeks. And the vast majority of maternal deaths in our country, the country that has the highest maternal death in the entire industrialized world by factors of order over other countries, uh, most of those deaths and health problems happen within the first five weeks. And we don't see mothers until their six-week postpartum unless they need to have a cesarean incision checked or unless they demand to be seen because they think there's an infection or some other problem. But routinely, we don't see women for the first six weeks. And you see a baby at 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, a week, two weeks, and four weeks, plus any other time that you have a question. And so what was so mind-boggling about these Boston Lying In obstetric files is that doctors who were residents in training, they were doing their obstetric round, they would go to these people's homes, they would help them have a baby, and then they would come back every day. If there was a fever, they would come back two to three times a day. They were making them tea, cleaning their beds, checking on wounds, checking the baby's weight, making sure you know the baby had silver nitrate on their eyes, making sure there were no other big issues that couldn't be solved. There was a doctor who knew that the mother he had just delivered was so impoverished, he gave her money out of his own pocket so that she could get sufficient food to feed her child with breast milk. There were doctors who were there to help women not feed their children with breast milk, and they wrote those into that plan. So they were part of this care structure where the mother and child are a medical dyad, which they actually are by medical definition, but not in our care system. You have to go to different systems and a pediatrician can't talk to a mother about what is going on with them. And a midwife or an obstetrician can't look at a baby while they're in the office. So we've separated that. The doctors used to come and deal with them as a unit. Um, and they would do this for weeks and they did it for free as part of their training. And this is a model that whenever we have talked about it on social media or told women that this occurred, they are first shocked and then kind of angry, um, knowing that this was possible as part of the routine training of doctors that would go into the obstetric field and knowing how different it was. You know, we, we also would interview people who've had a baby in the last five years. And, you know, one of them said, yeah, you know, I had, I had pretty good postpartum care. This person was not seen by a doctor. A doctor did not view their body in the 48 hour, 40, 40 hours, excuse me, after they had a baby. And then they were sent home and to be examined at all. After having had a baby, they had to call their doctor and lie and say that they thought they had an infection just to have a human being look at their body after they had a baby. This is like a, a person who's kind of a corporate powerhouse, really well-educated, well-connected in the community, knows their stuff. 
And this was her experience. So imagine if you didn't have all of those privileges. You know, you think about someone like Serena Williams who had to crawl on her hands and knees to the nursing station saying, my blood clots are so bad, I can't actually walk now. And they told her, oh, it's just baby blues. And she had a a massive blood clot, needed surgery, had to be in bed for six weeks, had a really scary near-death experience. And this is Serena Williams, right? So if Serena Williams can't convince people, how is somebody like me going to convince anyone that something might be going on and we need a little more attention? The difference between the postpartum care in the early 20th century and now is that in the early 20th century, women had postpartum care and now they don't. That's the difference. And that was jaw dropping. We had a totally different focus for this chapter. I got into those records and we scrapped literally every other idea we had for this chapter because we knew this was the story we had to tell. Yeah, it's really counterintuitive because you would expect in the 1800s that they would send you home super quickly and, you know, they wouldn't have the means to to provide any kind of care. Um, It's really surprising that it's the exact opposite. Yeah, and, and they expected it to take a while. So this is something we talk a lot about in the chapter. They would see a woman every day for 17 days and they would say that she had a normal and good recovery. So the expectation was that it would take some time and attention and that women would recover with the support they needed. They would recover nicely, but the normal recovery was meant to take time. You weren't supposed to be like throwing a brunch for your family with a 48-hour-old baby in your house, right? That wasn't the expectation. Um, The expectation was that you would need some time to recuperate because you had basically just been in a car crash. Um, yeah, so it, it, it was shocking to us and it's still shocking to us now. And I think, you know, that chapter is one that um, I would love to have people talking about because I think it's a conversation so much, so much at the core of what we need to be talking about in healthcare today. It puts those uh, meals that everybody makes for you when you first come home uh, in a whole new light. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, death because, um, Mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, young children and and infants do pass away. Um, Mm -hmm. In the Victorian era, how did uh, Victorian mourning customs affect how mothers dealt with the loss of a child? Um, Again, I'm going to say that in the Victorian era, death was much more embraced as a part of life. And so there were far more avenues for parents who were mourning to mourn and also to publicly grieve and to say goodbye to their children. Um, And I'm really glad you brought this up, Kevin, because we talked to plenty of people that don't want to talk about this chapter, but I think it's so vital because today on Facebook and on Instagram, there are people who um, lose their children unexpectedly at birth Um, or they know their children will be stillborn, and they partner with an organization called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. This is a national nonprofit organization, and free of charge, they have volunteer photographers come to your hospital and take beautiful images of you with your child and create a series of mementos for you so that you can remember this life. Because many people do not get to leave the hospital with their baby's body, Um, and do not get to do a traditional funeral for a host of reasons. And so for some families, these images are all they have. 
Um, and people will post them in memoriam, um, remembering their children on social media spaces. And they often get reported and removed as violating community standards. Um, so there's not really a public space in which parents can easily grieve today. I've seen some shifts on this as a lot of people with Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep and parents who have lost children. Um, Erin Willer out of the, uh, you know, in Colorado, she runs the Scraps of the Heart Project and she does a lot of research on child loss after having lost her son Milo. She talks a lot about how grief and loss structures work for parents, what they actually need, what's possible on social media and what's not. But in Victorian times, you would wear black for up to a year. You might bury your baby and the whole town might help you walk the coffin through the town. You might not have gotten an opportunity to take a picture of your child, although many people did take pictures of their children while they were living. Um, you might have an itinerant photographer or um, take your child to a local photography studio and have a picture now known as Memento Mori um, where you and often the, the, the fathers show up a lot more than we expected when we started looking at um, these archives. Um, there are some books called Sleeping Beauty and um, it's a collection of images printed from an archive that collects these, these images and they're beautiful, beautiful images. They're actually very similar to the ones that are today. They're often black and white. They would have been black and white or uh, sepia at the time because that was the only option. But the, the pictures are often black and white today. They're often soft focus. They often um, show the child as if they might be sleeping. They show the family gathered around and, and holding the child. There might be a favorite object or a bib or something that was special and bought for this baby and the baby might be wearing it in the picture. Um, those The pictures themselves are surprisingly the same the same style and the same sort of arrangement of the children and their family members. What's different is how acceptable they are publicly. And there was a lot more space in Victorian culture. There was a lot more death by epidemics. Um, there was more death by diarrheal illnesses and um, accidental poisoning and, and things like that. So, uh, but what we found was Victorians were not less devastated by the loss of their children. Uh, they marked the anniversary yearly. They remembered specific things about their child. They uh, wrote about what their child's last illness was like. They kept baby jewelry and rattles and things they have. They passed them down generations through their family. The Clemsons did this when they lost their daughter, Nina, at three. Um, all of her jewelry went to the older sister, and they had a picture of her uh, that they kept and her mother wrote her um, private entries in her diary mourning her loss. Um, and so there were so many ways uh, that Victorians could mourn and capture the imagery or the likeness of their children and this record of this life. And they were able to display these things publicly and, and people were much more comfortable with that. I think than they are today. And I think one of the ways we can really support people in our life who experience child loss is by letting them talk about and remember um, these babies and these infants and toddlers that are lost and finding ways to mark that with them, um, celebrating anniversaries and just uh, giving parents the space to say the child's name 
because that gives them a few seconds where the child's with them again. Uh, what do you think has caused this cultural shift? Is it just declining infant mortality rates over the last hundred years? Um, death is just not as commonplace to us as, as it once was? I absolutely think that's part of it. I think it's so aberrant. It's so out of the norm to have infant loss compared to, you know, 120 years ago that I think it's, it's much more shocking in a way that it wasn't shocking to the Victorians, even if it was horrific, equally horrific. Um, and but what was so interesting to me about the story is that there was this time um, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s where it was thought that it would be worse for the parents to see their child who had died. And so they would often not let the parents hold their stillborn child or a child that died you know, in the nursery or in some other way, because it was thought to make the grief worse. Um, as we continued to study human behavior and um, theories of, you know, attachment and biology, we realized that this was, you know, even just from observing animals, that um, when gorillas and chimpanzees lost babies, that they needed to spend time with them. And those that were able to spend time with them tended to be able to reenter their social groups better, right? So you have these anthropological studies starting to impact the way um, medical practitioners perceive what is necessary during this loss. And so in the 80s, you really have nurses, and a lot of the times we really see nurses, because they tend to be um, a more regular touch point with their patients, they often... Um, think of things, supportive tactics and resources that their patients need before a doctor would because they tend to be that point of contact. And so in the 1980s, there were nurses who just started having cameras on hand and they would take pictures of parents with their babies and then they would develop them and give them to the parents um, with the baby's hospital bracelet or their gown or something that they wore and, you know, this was really incredible work, but it's also sort of well outside of the responsibility of these nurses who had a lot of other things that they were responsible for doing. And so um, the founder, Cheryl, of Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, when she lost her son, she decided that she wanted to make sure that this resource could be there uh, whenever possible um, in a way that wouldn't burden the nurses who already had so much to do. And so that's how Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep was born. And, um, and they've been, been going strong for a number of years now. And it's really been great to see that um, many more people know about this agency and about local photographers. And parents are almost always given this option if they lose a child in a hospital setting. We also interviewed someone that lost a child from an undiagnosed heart issue that couldn't have been found before birth. Um, they were birthing with midwives who then... Um, made sure that they got to the hospital with their baby. And it was the midwives who talked to the nursing staff and got the local now I lay me down to sleep person there. And those images, you know, the mother told me that, um, her daughter Amaya wouldn't exist without these images. And so she's so thankful to, for them. But I, I think you're right. I think it's so rare today and we have so much intervention that we can do to, we can give baby, baby surgeries in utero now, Right? So I think we feel particularly shocked when someone loses a baby today. Um, and I think that's part of the resistance to talking about it more publicly. Um, so on that theme of photography, 
Um, another thing you, you talk about is the baby beauty contests. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people might be familiar with this, with the, with the Gerber baby. Uh-huh. Um, how is the history of the baby beauty contest uh, tied in with the eugenics movement? So, um, so in the late 1800s and very early 1900s, there were these baby beauty contests. Um, and actually prior to that in the mid 19th century, when they first started having beautiful babies brought and put, you know, displayed by their parents at state fairs, it was actually something that the abolitionist movement really didn't like. Um, they said like, Hey, can we not like rate people on their worth by their appearance in a public setting? We sort of, that's been sort of problematic slavery. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, and so they would talk about this in the paper a lot. And so, um, they were really against these baby beauty contests. What shifts in the early 20th century and starts with Mrs. Frances de Garmo, who, uh, is working out of Louisiana is that people understand, um, (laughs) that state fairs can also be a point of contact with the public health system and that parents who can't afford to go to the doctor or don't have the resources or the literacy to find out what is best for their children can be induced to know by having them enter their children in what was then called a better babies contest. And they were very particular about how this didn't have anything to do with appearance. Um, And, you know, red cheeks and curled hair don't necessarily mean that you have a healthy child. Um, And so they started putting together um, score sheets. Some of them had hundreds of different points that you could be scored on, everything from temperament to um, cognition to the head shape, shape of eye, length of the tooth, uh, the, the quality of the nail beds I saw in one. So they really, really, really measured these kids. They got um, into the minutiae. They, they really, they really <laughs> did. <laughs> and, and then interestingly, there are plenty of notes from doctors saying that you know, this child doesn't seem to have a good temperament. And I reading this thinking, sir, what two and a half year old is going to be calm three hours into an examination by the time you are measuring their finger beds? None. <laughs> there is no toddler that's going to have time for that. So um, a lot of toddlers got bad scores because they couldn't be patient through that three hour examination process with a number of different, um, ophthalmologists and dentists and all of these different people. But what's interesting about the better babies movement that grew out of the beauty contest is that most of the people running this at the state level, either, um, individual citizens like Francis de Garmo or doctors in Illinois or, um, visiting nurses and public health systems in New York City, most of these people supported the ideas of eugenics. Um, and they were thinking more positive eugenics than negative eugenics. There are historians that use the terms positive and negative eugenics and others that don't find them useful. I think if you're not familiar with eugenics, it's an easier way to understand the split. So negative eugenics is preventing something, right? Preventing the wrong people from having children, preventing people from marrying the wrong kind of people. So this is where you get into forced sterilization and some of those other things. Positive eugenics is thinking about how to reach your child, what to feed them, what kind of environment they need to sleep in, how to keep them away from a coal fire or keep them from drinking poison and thinking about who you marry so that when you have these children, you know how to take care of them. You have the best 
you know, stock um, to raise these children with. Um, and so parents, you know, in Idaho and in Illinois and Nebraska and a lot of these other middle of the country states, they actually would wait in line to enter their kids into this contest. There was often a cash prize or another prize that was really valuable to um, a lot of these parents who didn't have a lot of fungible income. And while they were in line, they saw a eugenics exhibit about how to marry the right people and how to eradicate blindness. At the time, the thinking was, you know, if someone is blind, they shouldn't have children and then we'll eradicate blindness. Um, We clearly didn't know about genetic expression um, and how some of these or any of these things really worked. But eugenics was very widely popular. It was very well received among the American public and among the And perceived as scientific. Absolutely. This was science. These were doctors telling you how to eradicate these problems from the human race and that it was possible. And so a lot of these people, some of the first teachings they would have ever received on eugenics would have been these large scale exhibits that they watched um, at the state fair as they, you know, went through. And a lot of the people were illiterate. So there were a lot of um, drawings and scales and pictograms that helped people understand the ideas of eugenics. And that might have been, for many of them, the first and only place where they were really hearing these ideas. And it also um, helped people get comfortable with the idea of taking their child to a pediatrician. Because if you wanted your better baby contest won the next year, you should have a medical practitioner overseeing your care of your child in the intervening year to up your chances. And there were certainly parents getting that message at some of the state fairs we studied. Well, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you, um, because social media plays a central part uh, throughout the book, um, how has the internet and social media tended to blur the line between um, lay or folk expertise and and technical med- medical expertise, and how has the you know this technology kind of complicated parenting today? Well, one of the ways that I would say it's complicated parenting, and Maggie and I, you know, my my co-author, we can both tell stories about really incredible things that happened on social media. Um, finding donor breast milk for somebody who found out they had breast cancer quickly after their child was born. Um, There's a lot of ways that social media can be a real help to people in a moment where they're feeling really desperate and maybe it's after hours and they they can't really get to a medical practitioner at that moment um, and it can become a resource. On the other hand, Instagram is sort of the better babies contest that's always going and no one ever wins. Um, it's this filtered edited space where you show the best of the day or, um, even for people that will show, uh, their child's struggling or themselves struggling, um, that too is chosen and edited and packaged. It doesn't mean that it's not vulnerable or it's not real, but it is curated vulnerability because you have to pick an image and you have to pick a thing to say about that. Um, and that's not like seeing something occur in real time. Even that is curated. So we're not really seeing a reality that is, that coincides with actual reality, but I think it feels like it. 
Um, especially when we see people sort of like telling the truth about how hard parenting is or something. Um, and un- understandably, because people make money on social media, some of those, this is how parenting is hard, are sponsored, right? People are making money off of that. Um, and so one of the ways I interact with social media is I acknowledge that to myself. Um, I know that that is a way that people have an income stream. And as complicated as that is, the the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. So when I feel like I'm getting drawn in too much into comparison or wondering how my kids are doing or um, getting into feeds that I feel like are just not great to, to look at, I remember that it is, in fact, curated and that it is a kind of a production and it can be um, a space for people to earn money and that's okay but I need to perceive it that way so that I can give myself a little break from trying to um, compare a false and produced standard of perfection and comparing it to anything that's going on in my own life and I think that's really how social media has complicated this space is that knowing what is real and knowing what what is produced um, there's a really fine line there and it's a really complicated space to understand that in. And then you have, you know, doctors that practice with their patients, but they also have a doctor account on Instagram and they might be giving out their medical expertise to people in the comments, even when they're not seeing them. There are other doctors that refuse to do that. Um, and then just like with twilight sleep, there are patients that say, look, if I can't reach you here, I'll find it somewhere here. Someone will tell me. Um, and we understand in the middle of the night when you can't, you know, when you're waiting to get a call back from a nurse and your kid has a rash and a high fever, that's when you're going to be on the mom's groups posting on Facebook saying, what is this? The problem is depending on the lighting, no one can probably really tell what the rash is unless they have eyes on it in person. And, but what you want in that moment is to feel supported and to not feel alone and to not feel scared. And that drive to feel supported and to have answers that has not changed over history. How we get the answers and how many voices are trying to give us the answers, that is what's changed in the social media age. In the past, this might have looked like, you know, uh, a mother calls her mother or calls an, mm-hmm. a, an aunt or family member to get their experience. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas today we just might go on to, like you said, a mom's group or, or a parenting group. Or an app, you know. Uh, what to expect when you're expecting or wonder weeks or there's a lot of parent apps that both provide medical information and also collect your personal data to use for studies, um, which they're open about, you know, um, and it it can be valuable data, but it, it is an interesting place because you don't actually know the people necessarily who you're in this chat room with or who you're getting um, information from. Alternatively, when Maggie and I, we have a couple of articles coming out this year about infertility communities on Instagram, um, something that we kind of extended from our book project. And um, there were people that just couldn't get a hold of someone and didn't know how to do an injection and posted their question and the med that they were working with and actually got really accurate medical advice uh, from fellow patients and in one case a nurse that happened to see the post. So that's another thing that makes it so complicated is that you can get worthwhile information, but it's very difficult to know what is what. And we've definitely seen uh, a lot of both. (laughs) So it's not all quackery, but, but you need to be discerning. 
Right. And how can you be discerning when you are hearing from, you know, trustworthy resources like NPR and BBC that Martin Cooney was a doctor when we don't actually have that information? And maybe that's not even important to the story of what Cooney did. But even trustworthy sources, you know, all of us and just like a historian, we get things wrong, you know, or we find something new that complicates what we knew before. And things move so fast on the Internet and the information that people provide is so truncated on most of these platforms that you it's almost impossible to get the full picture of what it is you're trying to understand in 240 characters or an Instagram post or even a long Facebook post. Um, it's, it's tough, but it's also really convenient and it also keeps people connected when most people don't live where they grew up. All right. Well, uh, Bethany, this was a a really interesting book. It it was a great blend of, uh, medical science and social science and history. Uh, Mm -hmm. and so it was a very fascinating, uh, book to read. Um, there is a lot more in there that, that we weren't even able to get to today. Uh, Mm -hmm. if someone wanted to learn more, uh, about your and Maggie's research or, or pick up a copy of the book, uh, where are some places they can go? Um, our book can be found online at Target, on Amazon, at Rutgers University Press. And um, depending on how this works for you, I can provide a 30% off code. If anyone wants to buy the book at Rutgers University Press, that brings it down to about 20 bucks, which is pretty good for an academic book. And um, you can also contact us directly and hear about the book and our other work at uh, johnsonquinlinresearch.com. And um, yeah, uh, our book is available in lots of places and we love to have people read it and take it a chapter at a time because each of the chapters are standalone and hopefully people will find it interesting. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you again to our guest today, Bethany Johnson, for sharing her expertise on this topic with us. As she mentioned at the end of our interview, we do have a discount coupon code available at the show website, www.cmtuhistory.com. For anyone who is interested in reading her and Margaret's book, you're doing it wrong. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Again, I'll ask you if you did to please leave a review on wherever you listen to your podcasts. And then we talked a lot about social media today. So if you would like to connect with Can't Make This Up, look for the show on Twitter and Instagram, both of which are at CMTU History. I am active on both just about every day, and I would love to hear from you and interact a little bit. All right, I know I normally close out the show with telling you when I will see you again. I can't exactly do that right now. The next two interviews I have scheduled to record are with a couple of top-notch historians, one of whom is a Pulitzer Prize winner, and the books we're going to be talking about are brand new releases that are coming out in February, and I'm in the process of working with the publishers to time up the release date with the release of the book. So... You'll get a couple episodes from me in early to mid-February. It's just at this point I can't tell you exactly when. But I'll have another episode ready for you soon. And if you keep in touch on social media, I will provide more details as I get them. All right, take care until next time.